0: does everyone have an outline for tonight it'd be helpful for you to have one so you can follow along in our bible study as we go through the book of or the book of romans romans chapter 15 is where we are tonight Do you need a you need an outline raise your hand high we got a couple over here there we go that's better none of this timid stuff we can't see you if your hand is too low time I teach in the book of Romans, I try to get a running start. And the reason I do that is because I think it's important to know where we've been and where we're going, because in order to understand what we're talking about, you have to understand where we've been. That's just the the flow of thought. That isn't the case always with every Bible book. Sometimes things are you can pull them out and understand things independently. Uh, The context always matters, but sometimes it matters less. Uh, Context is everything in the book of Romans. Context is so important. So as we talk about the book, we've dealt with the gospel and what it means for me. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. It results in salvation. It brings salvation to two groups of people, to the Jew first and also to the The Greek. Greek, to the Gentiles. So we have the Jew and Gentile, the people of God being not just the elect nation of Israel, but we're talking about the people of God as Jew and Gentile, part of one body. The diversity within the body of Christ is something that ought to surprise the world, and it's something that ought to be a good testimony uh, for the world. So, we see the gospel message clearly articulated in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, especially the first few, few chapters. We deal with the kind of prologue introduction of Romans, and the gospel is delivered in Romans 1, 17, 16, 17. And then we have the explanation of the need for the gospel in the first three chapters with the Gentiles and their sinfulness, the Jews and their sinfulness and in chapter 2, and then all people and our sinfulness in chapter 3, the fact that all people have sin. And what is sin? Sin is anything we think say or do that breaks God's commandments, anything that goes against God's law. And when we sin against God, that is a very serious uh, serious offense that results in condemnation and judgment. We see that in John chapter 3 and verse 17, when he who he who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe is, I don't know if you remember this verse, he who does not believe is condemned already because he he's not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. If you are not a believer in Christ, you stand condemned in your own sins. You will die in your sins rather than have your sins uh, taken by Christ and so and paid for on the cross. So you die in your sins and paying for those sins by eternity in hell. And so that's explained in Romans 1 through 3, chapter 4 and chapter 5 deal with uh, the gospel and the salvation we have through faith in Christ. And that's the beauty of the gospel message is that is not anything we can do to work or earn uh, in our own work. It is all of Christ. It is what He did on the cross that is is gift to us. It is the gift of God. And as Ephesians says, it's so that no one can boast. It is the gift of God, not of works. And we see that in Romans 4, 5, that Abraham believed, and it was countered to him for righteousness. Even before he was ever circumcised, he believed God, and that is what is accounted to him for righteousness. So it's not his keeping of the law, because Abraham was saved before the Mosaic law. We're talking a huge gap of years before the law was even given, and so he is declared righteous. And then we have the explanation of Adam, or the examples of Adam, the examples of um, of uh, Moses there, or I'm sorry, of Abraham there in chapter 5. And then we go to chapter 6 and we talk about the implications for. It the gospel which means that we are united with Christ. We can't we should not just sin all we want because we are saved and our salvation is not based on our works. In fact, if you're witnessing to somebody and you deliver the gospel message clearly to them, at some point they probably will ask, "Wait, you're telling me that if I trust Jesus as my savior and it's not based on what I do that I can can be saved and also do evil things?" and and if they're saying that that means they are understanding the gospel message because Paul actually deals with that exact question at the end of Romans 5 when he says uh, basically he says shall we con-, uh, or he says uh, sin where sin abounds grace abounds all the more that we cannot outsin God's grace and so the question comes then should we continue in sin that God's grace may abound and what's the answer to that God forbid, no way, why would you continue in sin you 're united with jesus now you 're saved you 're now one with Christ. you should not be living your life in sin that makes no sense for a believer to do that you 're baptized into his death, and as he died to sin, so we die to sin daily we are not to flirt with sin we 're not to entertain sin, we are not to make provision for the flesh. we are to die to sin Romans chapter six, but there 's the reality of our lives which is chapter 7 and we all know this reality of our life there is a law within us right we know what we're supposed to do but do we always do it no right the problem is not education often it's uh, it's it's just disobedience to god right we we know what's right but we choose to do wrong and he says i want to do i want to do right but i do wrong and then i uh, you know the, then i get upset with myself basically is what he says and he says oh wretched man that i am who will rescue me from this body of death he gives the answer in At the end of that chapter, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, and he rescues us in this Spirit-empowered living in chapter 8. We can can live in the Spirit. We can live in obedience to Christ. It's a battle. It's a real battle, but we can live under no condemnation, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and we have the Spirit in us, working in us, doing tremendous things, and so by the end of chapter 8, he is saying, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, nakedness, famine, a sword? Uh, we, are, we are, no, we, we are more than conquerors through him. Who loved us. And then the question is answered about Israel, chapters 9, 10, and 11, about how if this is the case, then what about Israel, who was the elect people of God? Then how can they, they rejected Christ? How, how is it possible that God's grace is so good and God's grace is so perfect? If God's grace given to Israel, they rejected him. And he explains how they were chosen and they were part of God's plan. But then in chapter 10, he explains how salvation must be a personal thing. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That, that you, you may grow up in a Christian home wrong Christian people in a Christian church, but you may not be saved, you may not be converted unless you come to Christ yourself. You must personally be saved in Romans 11. He talks about God not being done with Israel. God still has a plan for Israel in chapter 11. So then he makes the turn at chapter 12 and talks about the implications for the gospel, what it means for me. All this doctrine in chapters 1 through 11 and the implications for our gospel living in chapters twelve through 15, 16, he talks about our our behavior in the church, how we deal with one another, how we deal with people who don't like us. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with with good. We are to, to love other people. We are to, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with people. We are to live at peace with people in the government. Romans chapter 13, we are to be obedient as we can when the government uh, is asking us to do things that are in keeping with God's God's role for them. We are to do what they say. We are to be submissive to the governing authorities because they have our good in mind. In chapter 14, We dealt with um, this responsibility we have to love our brothers who disagree with us on things that are not laid out clearly in the Scripture, things that are Uh, debatable, things that are doubtful, doubtful issues. How do we handle this? We have the weaker brother and the stronger brother, and they are called to love each other and therefore promote unity. We have the stronger brother who is not to despise the weaker brother. We have the weaker brother who is not to judge the stronger brother. And these two have to understand that God has accepted them because they stand before their own master. To your own master, you stand and fall. It's not about you pleasing other people in the church, or at your first question is not, what does so-and-so do? Your first question should be, what does God want of me? And when we have that kind of attitude, we can be in a diverse and, and, and yet unified church, a church that has harmony in it. I like the word harmony because, you know, we do music here, we sing music, and some of you are musicians, some of you are not, but have you ever noticed, you ever listened to music before and you hear people singing different notes? And it sounds good. Now, sometimes you, people sing different notes and it doesn't sound good. Like probably the last time you had a happy birthday song at your happy birthday, everyone starts on a different pitch. No one knows what they're singing and everyone just kind of does the best they can. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's a mess. It's, it's horrible. I, I mean, it's, but, but when people sing harmonies, what they're doing is they're singing uh, different pitches, yes, but they're singing in a way that brings beauty because they're complimentary. And I think sometimes in a church you have that aspect of people who are unified, yet we're not all singing the same pitch. We're not necessarily on unison and everything. We're harmonizing. We're together. We, we are unified, yet we are diverse. And there's this really interesting example of that in chapter 14 with a stronger and weaker brother. And so he says in verse 19 of chapter 14, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify each other. We are to pursue that which builds up the body. And so as we walk into chapter 15, we're going to finish out this, con- this discussion about stronger and weaker brothers and really explore this idea of hope, uh, which is where this all goes. What, what does this mean for the world? What does this mean for us? What can we look forward to? And how does this bring hope to us? Let's have a word of prayer, then we'll dive in. Father, we ask you to give a blessing tonight uh, upon the reading and teaching of your word. I pray that you would help us to be thorough and uh, examine our hearts, that we would make sure that we are in obedience to you, but also that we have believed what you said, that we might have hope. And if we have embraced the world's thinking, I pray that we would reject it. I pray that we would embrace your truth. Thank you, Lord, for expounding these things to us, that we might have hope. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at this uh, scripture before us. The first thing we're going to see is the results of accepting the weaker brother. The passage begins in verse 1. He says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. Here's the command. If you're one of the strong people, if you're one of the strong, you ought to put up with, show patience with, endure, the, we, the scruples just is, is a fancy word for weaknesses, the, the lack of power, the weaknesses of the powerless is one way of saying this, the, the, the sicknesses of the weak. Um, he says, and not to please ourselves. You notice the contrast here? You see first, what are we supposed to do? Bear with the scruples of the weak, not to please ourselves. These are set in contrary one to the other. Uh, it, it would be easy to please yourself and to not put up with someone who is weak. To, to say, oh, I don't want to deal with them. They're too much trouble. It's too much hassle. It's too much of a bother to me. But we are instead to not please ourselves but please our brothers. Notice the purpose here. Let each one of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to what? Edification. What does edification mean? To build up. To build up. You are, the reason you do this is that you are, you are pleasing your neighbor, you are benefiting, doing things that benefit your weaker brother, so he might be uh, built up, and it's for his own good. Your concern should be for his edification. It would be way easier for us to be impatient, be unkind, and not loving, but this behavior is based on the example of Jesus. Do you see this? The first blank, by the way, here, I have this. I'm going to try something new. Here's your first blank. Edification. You like that? Edification. Results of accepting the weaker brother. When it's green, that means it's fill-in-the-blank time, okay? Back to the white. Okay, here we are. The result is that you are building up your brother. When you accept that weaker brother, you are building him up. And this example is based in the example of Jesus. Look at verse 3. For even Christ, and when you see the word for, often that's an explanation. Okay? Let me explain, he says. Even Christ did not please himself. He did not seek to please his own self, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. He was willing to take the reproaches of others. As we keep going, let's look at verse 4. We see the Old Testament establishes a pattern of hope. We have edification and hope. Look at verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Okay, let's think about this. Whatever things are written before, what's he talking about? Exactly. Old Testament Scriptures. The, yeah, the patriarchs. So you have the 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 Pentateuch of the first five books. You have the history books. You have the writings. You have the the the, uh, the prophets. You have all these all of these uh, books that we have in the Old Testament. And he's talking about them. Is the Old Testament relevant today? Absolutely. Is the Old Testament to be discarded and thrown away? No. Okay, there are some who don't, don't know how to handle the Old Testament, so they don't think about it, they don't talk about it. We, we need to teach and preach the Old Testament because the Bible tells us these things were written for our learning so that we, through the patience and comfort of Scripture, might have hope. Let's talk about what this means. What kind of um, learning, what kind of instructions are we getting? That we, through patience, through perseverance, through endurance, that's what that means, And comfort, which means exhortation, this is the same word here, the word comfort is the same word that's used um, uh, by the Holy Spirit, uh, calling the Holy Spirit a comforter, but it's also the idea of exhort through the exhortations of the Scripture, through the endurance and the exhortations or comfort of the Scriptures. Uh, That is, the patience of the Scripture, I believe, is talking about the patience of demonstrated in the scriptures that 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 the god's promises get fulfilled that we see patience in the scriptures that god makes a promise and people are patient with god and god delivers on the promise the patience of the scriptures is the patience explained in the scriptures or demonstrated in the scriptures we have a record of it you can look at the bible you can look at the old testament and the old testament covers a huge amount of history and you can see when god makes a promise and god fulfills a promise And so by seeing this, we can see the big picture. We don't get that chance too often in our lives. We have very few opportunities where we can actually see God's promise and God's deliveries in our lives. We can see a few of them, perhaps, but but not many. But in the Scripture, we can see many. We can look at the promises of God and the fulfillment, and we can also apply those promises to our lives. Also, this comfort of the Scripture, this exhortation of the Scriptures gives us hope. Now, this word is an interesting word, and we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about this, because if you spend time like I do, I spend a, a lot of time, I just can't help it, whenever I'm exposed to culture around the, around our, uh, in our world today, if I listen to the radio, or if I have the TV on, if I'm even driving down the road, you look at billboards, you talk to people, I'm exposed to culture. I'm constantly thinking about our culture and how, how, how different it is from God's way of doing things, how contrary to God's word it is. What it, To me, I think a lack of hope is the number one problem in our culture today. Uh, hope is, is nowhere to be found, and the symptoms of this are everywhere. Okay, nihilism, which it denies purpose, it denies meaning, it says that there, there, you're not, I mean, think about, think about evolutionary biology, which says you're just a bunch of molecules mixed up in a bag of meat. And you're floating around the world and your basic your only goal is just to maximize your pleasure and minimize your pain. How much hope is in that? If you're just a bunch of stardust walking around, you have no meaning in this world, you don't matter, everything's gonna explode in in a couple million years anyway, and the whole world's gonna collapse on itself and everything that mattered is gonna be gone, then why do you care about what you do? Why do you care about doing right? If morals are all subjective, who's to say you're right and I'm wrong? Why can't my morals be right and your morals be wrong? Why can't I just do what I want to do? People lack any kind of of hope in this world because they bought into a completely materialistic mindset about the world. They don't understand what God is doing behind the scenes. They've denied God. They have suppressed God's knowledge. We see this in in Romans chapter 1. They suppress the knowledge of God, and they give themselves over to all kinds of immorality, And they worship idols and they lose all hope. Um, I was thinking about this. If you look at the definition, I gave you a definition of hope. This is from a very common uh, Greek dictionary. Uh, The initials are BDAG, or BDAG, we call it. It it defines hope as the looking forward to something with some reason for confidence respecting fulfillment. You can often describe this or use the words in English hope or expectation. Expectation. The Greek philosophers often thought about the way people thought about the world as you have the immediate, you think about your immediate uh, world, but you also think about the past through memory and the future through hope. What are you expecting in the future? Um, Hope can have a positive or negative in the Bible, but the Bible talks about hope as being oriented toward the future and God's power to fulfill his promises. Hope is the opposite of anxiety. Because if you're anxious, if you have full of anxiety, what what does that mean? What are, what are you what are you doing by being anxious? What are you saying about the world around you? I, I don't yeah I can't I don't know what's going to happen. There, there's not fear. The problem is, is that our fear today. I was speaking with a another pastor at one point. And he brought this excellent point up. He said, "You know, our problem today is not necessarily fear. We're not a very fearful culture. We're a very anxious culture. We're fearful of of just we have a general sense of anxiety about everything. It's not like our fear is directed towards one thing. It's that we walk around completely anxious about everything. Um, we we live in a constant state of." anxiety, and so much so that, that people, you know, have, even in the world are recognizing this is a huge problem. And this is based on a lack of hope. If there's no hope, if there's no future, if everything is just up for grabs, if there's no basis in and depend, if you have to depend on yourself, there's no God to depend on, I can fully understand why people would be full of anxiety. In fact, I think that's the right response. I think despair and anxiety are the right responses if you don't have God. Okay? If God does not exist, if God is not there, if God is not around, then you should be despairing, losing all hope, and you should be completely anxious. But guess what? We have a God, right? We have a God and we have a Lord. We have a Christ who saves us, who redeems us, who cares for us. In fact, I have another quote here. I was doing some more research on this word, and he says, the hope of the faithful, when viewed as an attitude, is a concrete personal expectation. Here's your part here. He says, despite everything, That at present runs counter to the promise. The one who hopes trusts God not to disappoint the hope he has awakened through his word. God makes promises, and hope means you look at your circumstances, and it may not match up completely with what God has promised. Like you say, I don't understand how God's going to answer this, but I know that he will. Okay, that is what hope is. Hope is the expectation of what's going to come, even if it hasn't happened yet. You look at it in the face. You look at the danger in the face, and you you recognize the hope of God that's coming. In fact, there's several Old Testament verses that reflect this. Psalm 42 verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Why are you in turmoil? Why are you anxious within me? He's speaking to himself. What's the answer? What does he give as an antidote to this problem? This is a, a, a person who is full of anxiety and pain. What is his answer? hope in God, okay? Put your hope and your expectation not in your own abilities, but in God. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Hope in God. How about Isaiah 8? I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. God at this point, you know, he says God is hiding his face. He is not being obvious to the house of Jacob, yet I will hope in him, and I will wait on him. These ideas of hoping and waiting are connected. They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, right? Right? To keep going, Micah 7, 7, therefore I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Here is the hope and the expectations we have here, a biblical expectation, biblical hope. And we see this played out. We see this hope as we are unified, as we accept one another. We give hope to the world, actually. God gives hope to the world. Let's keep going in our passage. If you read with me in verse 5, let me give you the blank. You ready? Unity. There it is edification, hope, and unity. Now, he says, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. God is a God of patience and comfort, right? He is the God of patience and comfort, and he gives the Scripture of patience and comfort. May the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. There is our word for unity. To be like-minded means to be unified or to have a good unity, a good harmony with one another. We are to be unified according to Christ Jesus, right? That is to be our unifying point, our anchor point together. We are to be unified towards Christ, right? There'll be differences we have with one another, but towards Christ, we are unified. According to Christ, we are unified. Look, the next verse, that with one mind and one mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the ultimate purpose of this unity within the church? What's the ultimate purpose? Well, the ultimate purpose is harmony and unity that glorifies God. This kind, if you, as you read this passage, he says that we are to have this kind of harmony and unity that glorifies God. You may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile with one mouth. Jew and Gentile with one mind, glorifying God. It, it really makes much of God when we're able to do that. This is the purpose. When you see the word that, so that, this word right here indicates we're dealing with the purpose for all of this. You may glorify God. The purpose of chapter 14 is the discussion about the strong and weak was that God be glorified by the differences among his children, that is, their diversity. Because the diversity of Jew and Gentile in the same church worshiping the same Lord brings glory to God when there are different people worshiping God. At the same time, the Bible puts a high price on unity. So there's an importance of building up the church body, building up the individuals. If we are going to live in a diverse yet unified church, we have to establish what's negotiable and what's non-negotiable. Right? You can't be in union with someone. You can't disagree over major issues and still work together to accomplish the same purpose. There's a tag, there's a tagline that goes around in today's um, culture that says, our diversity is our strength. Have you heard that before? Our diversity is our strength. Um, That can be true in some ways, but it's not true in all things. Like, if you're, if you're, if you're diverse in your goals, that's not a strength right? If, you, if, if, you, if, if, my, if I had a car full of people, right, and we all had different ideas about where we wanted to go for dinner, is our diversity our strength at that point? No, because we have one car, we only go in one way, and if everybody's yelling, they want to all go different places, our diversity is not our strength. It's a problem. We have to agree on some things, But there is a sense in which God is glorified by different people and different groups coming to God. It shows that the gospel is a worldwide thing. It's not just a Jewish thing, Jew and Gentile. The whole world hears the gospel, but we have to be unified. We can be diverse, different people, but we have to be unified. Unified on the important things. Being of the same mind. The unity is not so that one of you bends to the will of the others, but you are unified according to Christ. So, we have to have diversity and unity. We can't be just focused on diversity for the sake of diversity. That makes no sense in the church. That's not what we're approaching. We're approaching a unified body in the Spirit in Christ. So, therefore, he says, as a result of this, receive one another just as Christ also received us. Okay? So if we go back here, the ultimate example is Jesus Christ. How did Jesus receive us? Well, he received you by accepting you. When you came to Christ and you believed on him, did Jesus, if you believed in Christ, did he, um, did he accept you as you were, put it that way? Absolutely. We come to Christ broken and needy and sinful and we say, Christ save me. He doesn't say, No, wait a second. First you gotta stop smoking. Now don't laugh. There's some people who make it out like you've got to stop smoking and stop drinking, and you've got to do all these things before Christ will save you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you come and you give yourself to Christ. You give, you say, Lord, I I I believe on you fully. And then he cleans you up. So, as we notice here, the ultimate example of Christ, how does Christ accept us? He accepts us fully. He he accepts us as His own, and as we should receive one another just as Christ received us. And if we notice this last phrase here, what's the ultimate purpose? The glory of God. It is to the glory. Of God, Christ is our example. I want you to think about the, 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 uh, the parable Jesus gives about the men who had debts. Remember, there was a, a servant who owed money to a king, and he goes before the king, and he says, oh, king, I, you know, I have a lot of money I owe you, but if you're patient with me, I will pay you all. And you know that story. That would have been impossible. The amount of money he owed him, he could never have paid back. Yet the king had mercy on this man. And what did he do? He forgave him his debt. Let's say that debt was $10 million, a massive amount of money. could never pay the debt back. He is forgiven the debt, and he's, he's so grateful for being forgiven of the debt. You know what he does? He goes to the streets, the highways and byways, finds someone who owes him $50, throws him up against the wall, and says, grabs him by the throat and says, pay me what you owe, the exact same thing that he was just told. And what does the man say to him? Be merciful with me, and I will pay you all, the exact same thing he had just said to the king. And how does this man respond to the call for mercy? He throws him in jail. He says, no, I'm not going to have mercy with you. You owe me this money. You're going to jail until you pay me what you owe me. When the king hears of the, unmer- the, the lack of mercy from his own servant, he calls him back in and he says, you know what? I told you you're forgiven. I'm not forgiving that. The message is this. You have been forgiven so much. You have been forgiven so much by God. Who are we to hold out forgiveness from others? We have been forgiven an unbelievable unbelievable debt. This is what is being taught here, the servant that we are. Just as Christ received us, we are to receive others. And this does not sound difficult to you, but I want you to think as a Jew would have thought. Remember, the Jews were involved. I I, I preached this before. Some of you may not have been here. Back when we went through Acts 15, I spent a lot of time talking about a Greek uh, ruler by the name of Antiochus IV. His nickname was Epiphanes, which means God revealed Antiochus had a big ego, and Antiochus hated the Jews. In fact, he hated the Jews so much he was involved in an active slaughter against the Jews. He killed a bunch of many of their priests because he, he outlawed a circumcision, and so he went in and killed a bunch of their priests for performing circumcision. He took a pig and sacrificed it on the altar in the temple, defiling it. He hated Jews and, and, and tried to kill Jews and wipe them out. There was a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus, or Judas the Hammer, they called him, and he went and he led a revolt, and the Maccabean revolts are are detailed in history by Josephus in the book of Maccabees uh, that you can read about, these uh, Jewish revolts against the, the Greeks. So, if you're a Jew, you have revolted against these people who wanted to kill you and destroy you, and now you're sitting next to someone in church whose family hated you and wants to destroy you, and they stood for everything that you stood against as a Jew. These Greeks stood for paganism. They stood for everything against Jews. And you're supposed to accept that person into the fellowship to worship your Messiah. You think about how hard that would be. It would not be unlike the Jews today learning to worship next to a German Nazi officer Or people in the old American South, slaves and masters being in the same church together. The kind of things that people had to get over and had to learn to accept is is, is mind-boggling. We don't think of it as, as, as too bad. We think, oh, what's the big deal? You're next to somebody who doesn't look like you or who maybe has a different accent. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about huge cultural problems. And so, when he says here, we are to accept them as Christ accepts us or receives us, this is to the glory of God. It really would have been an amazing, it would have made God look amazing to those who saw it because the world was extremely divided by family and class and nation. And so, to see people in the same worship service together, side by side, master and slave, right, slave and free, as it says, male and female, Jew and Greek, standing before God. What an amazing picture that is of where we are before Christ. And it does give glory to God. So, if you look at verse 8, we'll see the next point uh, here. I guess I should go, I think I did that all the way. Okay, next point. God planned Gentile salvation from the beginning. The question might come up okay. Was this part of God's plan, or was this just a something that happened as a mistake? Was it God, like, filling in the blanks after the fact? Why why did it happen this way? Uh, People have asked this question a lot. In fact, uh, this is a good discussion question for when Jesus came. Was he offering the the kingdom to the Jews right then and there, or was Gentile salvation uh, not part of the plan at first? Well, I believe this is teaching us that God planned Gentile salvation from the beginning. Look at verse 8. He says, now I say, that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision or a servant to the Jews for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing your name. First, I want you to see that Jesus Christ came as a servant to the Jewish nation. He came as a servant to the Jewish nation. If you look at this, he says a servant to the Gentiles. That just means that Jesus came in the flesh as a Jew. You notice, you know that, right? He came, he lived as a Jewish man. He was a Jew, and his ministry, he dedicated himself totally to ministering to fellow Jews. His ministry was focused on Jews. He was uh, kept the Jewish law. He lived a perfect Jewish life, and Jesus came to prove the faithfulness of God. That's our second point here. He came to prove, oops, sorry about that. Let me get rid of this. Didn't mean to do that. He came to prove the faithfulness of God. That's a way of understanding this, this phrase here. I say that Jesus says, uh, let me find it, uh, for the truth of God. Do you see this right here? For the truth of God. Another way of understanding that is, is that word truth has the idea of God's faithfulness to show that God is faithful. God's revelation of his word to the Jews and his promise of a Jewish Messiah meant that the Son of God would come through the line of Abraham and would prove that God is faithful. Jesus coming as a Jew proved God's faithfulness in the past for the truth of God. Uh, I have a quote here from uh, Newman and Nida. on the, uh, It says, To show that God is faithful is literally meaning on behalf of the truth of God. In the Old Testament, truth is often used with the meaning of faithfulness, and it appears that in this area... of meaning meaning covered by Paul's use of the word in the present verse. In this context, faithful is often translated to do what one has promised to do. Therefore, this can be expressed as in order to show that God would do what he said he would do. That's why Jesus came in the flesh as a servant to the circumcision. God's promises still stand. I have a few verses uh, to look at here. Romans 11 reminds us, has God cast away his people? What's the answer to that? Certainly not. Or God forbid. Has God cast away the Jews? I am also an Israelite, he says, of the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, whom he foreknew. If we keep going, Romans 11, he speaks about the, the depths of the knowledge of God. You look at verse um, verse 9. That the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Oh, the depths and the riches, both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his ways past finding out. This is us giving glory to God for his mercy, verse Uh, Let's see it right here. Glorify God for his mercy. This is part of why Jesus came. He came that the Gentiles might glorify God. He also came um, to fulfill the scriptures. Let's go back to verse 9. It is written... So we have a bunch of quotes here. If you look at your Bible, you'll see if you have a New King James like I do or a modern translation, you have a bunch of quotes from the Old Testament, usually set apart in italics or in small caps or in something, beginning in verse 9 and going all the way through verse 12. And these are all pointing out that Jesus came to fulfill the Scripture, specifically that the Gentiles would receive, uh, would glorify God. Let's look at these verses together. Um, starting in verse 9. For this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Verse 10, and again he says, Rejoice, who? O Gentiles with his people. Who are the people here? The Jews. Rejoice, O Gentiles with the Jews. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse... And he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Even the Messiah will have a ruler over the Gentiles. The, the, the Messiah of the Jews will rule over the Gentiles. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's walk through these fulfillments of Scripture. I have a. A few of these here, I'm just going to put them up on the screen. You'll see these. I'm not going to spend a ton of time. I went through and found the references here. He's quoting uh, Psalm 1849. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praise to your name. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. Isaiah 11. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him. And his resting place shall be glorious. Who is this root of Jesse? Christ Christ Jesus. He is the root of Jesse. In fact, we have this in Revelation 5, um, the same picture. One of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, or the root of Jesse, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. The root uh, of David. What an amazing description of the Christ. And the offspring. And the offspring, yeah, Absolutely. In fact, if we look at the meaning here, if we go back to why is it that the Gentiles will be blessed? what is the, ulti- what is the first promise, the first covenant we have in the Bible? If you, if you go to if you don't talk about the covenant in, in the garden, if you go forward, what's the first major covenant we have between God and man, in Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, right? Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant. Do you remember what the Abrahamic covenant says? I'm going to put it up on the screen so you can review it. The Lord said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family, from your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. Look at this. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Bible does not begin with the Ten Commandments and with the Exodus. That's the start of the Jewish nation per se, okay? That's really the birth of the Jewish nation, the giving of the law. It doesn't start there. Where does the Bible begin? Where does the Bible begin its story? In the beginning, God created the heavens. Y'all know this verse. The heavens and the earth. God is, is dealing with the whole world, okay? Yes, it's a Hebrew Bible. Yes, it's written to a Jewish people. But the, the scope of salvation is not just for this little group of people. It is a global scope. So he begins with, in the beginning God created. And the first 11 chapters of the Bible deal with the spreading of the nations. We have the flood and we have the nations. We have Tower of Babel. We have all this stuff. And then we focus in on Abraham in chapter 12. And we deal with the Jewish nation all the way through. But you notice it is a global thing, which is why the promised Abraham here is that you will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And, And later on, just one more, Isaiah 42, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you a covenant to the people, a light to the Gentiles. All of this should give us hope because God has proven himself faithful in the past. This is the key. Why is the Old Testament giving us hope today? Well, you've seen God's track record of faithfulness. You've seen the hope that he has, uh, that he has given us by his, his, uh, his, his faithfulness in the past. That's why, if you look at verse 13, we'll focus on this and we'll close. We're only going to do half of this chapter uh, tonight. Look at verse 13. He says, now, and here's a prayer, may the God of what? The God of hope. The God who promised the Gentile salvation in Genesis chapter 12 in seed form and then expands it out over the entire Old Testament and gives all these things. And, and then when Jesus comes and, and, and he gives salvation to us as Gentiles and the and the, and the world, is, and the news is spread all over, we just finished the book of Acts and, and we talk about the spread of the gospel to the Jew and to the Greek, to beginning in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The God of hope, he will fill you with what? Look at this. God of hope will fill you with all Joy and peace. What's missing in our world today? Hope, joy, and peace. And they're all connected. If you have no hope, you have no joy. Because you have no expectation that anything good is going to happen. You're, just, you're depressed, you're anxious, you're upset. And you, you hate things that are beautiful, true, and good. And our world today has destroyed the beautiful, the true, and the good. Everything's ugly, false, and wicked. We have destroyed these things because we reject the hope that's in God. And when you but when you embrace the hope that's in God, may the God of hope, He's known by His hope, He gives hope, He fills us with all joy and peace when we do what? When we believe. You have to believe God and take God at His Word. Only when you take God at His Word can He be filled with joy and peace. That you may abound, that you also may abound in what? You may abound in hope. That means your hope, God, the God of hope, will give you hope. You will abound in hope. Your life will be full of hope. You'll have all the hope in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is, that is the God of hope, the God who is the source of hope, will fill you with joy. He will fill you with peace so that you will then have hope when you believe. When you receive joy and peace from God, you can only receive that joy and peace when you are believing. And when you trust God, that's when you have hope. You're not going to have hope without trusting God, and you can't trust God without a God who is full of joy or who is full of hope because you only experience joy and peace when you believe this God. And I think this is the, 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 the anecdote, it is the solution is the, the, the answer to the problem of hopelessness that is so pervasive in our world today. The problem of hopelessness cannot be solved with a pill. It can't be solved by blaming other people. It must be solved with a hopeful God, a God of hope, a God who brings hope, a God who gives hope. And the only way you're going to have hope is if you believe in a God who is reliable. And that's why the Old Testament was written, so that we, through the patience and endurance of the Scriptures, might have hope. And so I hope this, I hope that this can be the kind of thing that you dwell on. The more you dwell on this, the more you will be encouraged. Because you can know for certain that God is, has this under control. Nothing is surprising God. We trust in a God, and we hope in a God. When we say hope, often we use the word hope as like, I hope it works. But this kind of word hope does not mean I hope it works. It means I know it's going to happen. It's an eager expectation and assurance you have in your heart. What what questions, comments, or thoughts do you have about this passage? If you have a couple, we can take a couple minutes here at the end. Yes, sir. There you go. We have to stay focused on the Hall of Faith, Hebrews eleven. We have something greater waiting for us. Amen. He says, "Peace is not the absence of trouble; it's the presence of faith in trouble." It's it is. Go ahead. The presence of Christ. Presence of Christ. Sorry, the presence of Christ in your troubles. Right. We know that, that no matter what happens, we have something greater waiting. That's Amen. Believers. If if you, um, I encourage you to uh, to keep notes of when God answers prayer. Because you need to be reminded of the good things that God has done in your life. And that's part of the reason we give praises. You need to be reminded of the good things. If you, if you don't write it down, if you don't think about it, you will forget. You will forget how good God has been. And sometimes you need to just praise God and thank God for his faithfulness to you in answering prayer. Other comments or thoughts? Yes, sir. We have a gap. Absolutely, Yep. Yeah. The, stones, yep. the whole thing about that was, why are we doing this? So you could tell your children and your children's children what God did at this point in your life. It is exactly important to drive down stalls in your life of when God has helped you because there will be a time that comes along that tests that confidence, yep. and you have to be able to revert back to that. Abs- uh, the, the whole, there's a, a sermon. I, I actually preached a sermon out of Joshua on that passage, and I called it making memories. And there is a whole, there's a whole theology of making monuments to what God has done in your life. In fact, our word memory and the word monument are are, are connected in in the ancient language is the idea of building a monument to remember. And the question is, so your children will say, what do these stones mean? If you go through the book of Joshua, there are several different piles of stones there are some that are meant for good. There are some that are meant for evil. In fact, if you notice, even Achan's sin, what do they do after Achan's sin? They piled stones on top of him, right? There's a list of stones in the book of Joshua that are meant to be a teaching thing for the children. They can go back and they can say, what do these stones mean? They say, well, these stones mean this, and this is God's deliverance through, through, the, uh, through, this, through the river, and this is on the side of the river, in the middle of the river, and these are all things to remember, and we need to remember so we can have hope and expectation, remember what God has done and we can abound in hope when we trust in the Lord. Yeah. Any other comments or questions on this passage today? I hope, I hope this is encouraging to you and a challenge to you. Okay? Thank you so much for coming tonight. I appreciate your participation with me in this Bible study. I hope that it's an encouragement to you and a blessing to you. Let's close the word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Let's stand in prayer. Why don't we stand together, and we'll close. Father, we love you. We thank you for giving us the Word of God that gives us hope in a world that is hopeless, we we pray you'd help us to turn them to the truth. I pray we would not be ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God to salvation to the Jew and also to the Greek. It is the gospel that gives us hope. It is your presence among us that gives us peace, and we're thankful that we can have this hope today, that we can leave this building knowing that you're, you have a plan for this future, that even if we may die physically, if we may we may have troubles in this world. We may go through intense illness or sickness or pain or persecution, peril or sword. We can go all through all these sufferings, yet We can be more than conquerors through him who loved us because nothing can separate us from your love, height nor depth, nor any other created thing. And we're so grateful for what you've given us in your word, the encouragement it is. And I pray that we would be a hope and a light in a shining world because the light that's on the hill cannot be hidden. So let our light so shine that we may glorify our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name.